afternoon, the Gospel of Luke. This is the story of uh, a couple of brothers and uh, how that they um, reacted to um, the things of the Lord. It's only a, a story, it's not a, a real story, it's what the Bible calls a parable, but uh, just to try and give us some idea on the things that uh, work with God and the things that don't work with the Lord. And uh, we just start reading there in uh, Luke chapter 15 and verse 11, it says, And he said, A certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that uh, falleth to me. And he divided unto him his living, or his inheritance, as we would mostly say today, or his portion thereof. And not uh, many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want, or as we would say, in need. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain or have filled his belly, with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned uh, against heaven and before thee. I am no, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Uh, make me as one of the hired servants. So this is the part of the story about one of the, the brothers and how that um, pretty well known story of course um, how this guy had um, gone and really lived it up and the end result was that um, everything sort of disintegrated and uh, life started to fall apart. It's the, li it's the story of many people's lives on this earth. It seems as though when we're teenagers in particular or thereabouts, we seem to go through, not everybody, but a lot of people go through this sort of scenario of where they sort of break loose and they're going to gain their freedom and they're going to have a great time and, and so on. And the end result is that in many cases their life ends up in tatters. Um, it's interesting though, in some ways it's sort of almost the story of life for everybody. It's the story of life of people that haven't got the Lord. It's the story of people, of the life of folk who maybe in other ways have great expectations. They might not live a, a riotous life, but um, there comes a time, like it says here, that um, there was a great famine in the land in verse 14. And there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to want. And uh, that can be really the story of life, where... Um, in a time of need, we suddenly find we haven't got what it takes. We might not have the financial resources. We might not have our health intact. Suddenly find out that a lot of our friends that we thought were friends are not friends at all. And we end up pretty lonely and destitute and maybe don't know which way to go. Some people don't end up that way financially, but maybe within themselves they end up that way. They don't know which way to turn. The, the famine could be just a simple thing called peace of mind and they don't have it. 
and uh, they don't know which way to turn, they don't know how to find it. Or maybe if they did have it young, earlier on in life, when they were younger, at this time they've, they've lost it. Um, and so, as it says in verse 15, you seek to other people to help you, as he did here. He joined himself to the citizen of that country. And the, this person uh, gave him a job, but it certainly wasn't much of a job. And uh, we see here that he was ended up being incredibly hungry and uh, would have even liked to eat what the pigs ate. In the end of verse 16 it says, But no man gave unto him. And really again, that is the story of life. That when the chips are down, really people cannot help you all that much. And uh, people might turn to the medical profession, they might turn to uh, the local church, and all people have limitations. People can help you up to a certain point, but uh, there comes a time when uh, you realise that you need something better and bigger and stronger and more in enduring than what people can do for you. There's always a limit. There might be a limit to our financial resources. There might be, of course, a limit to other pe people's patience in trying to help us. And uh, we might go here, there and everywhere, and after a while we realise that to a certain extent we're on our own. And what are we going to do about it? Well, the answer is what this young man did. And the, the, the father, of course, represents God. And he said, I'm going to go to him. He can help me. And uh, his attitude, of course, is uh, quite awesome at this stage. He had a pretty lousy attitude when he started off. We would use the word rebellious. doesn't actually say he was rebellious here, but it's hard to imagine that his father would have been happy with what he was doing. And, uh, but here we see that he says, right, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to return to my father and I'm going to beg him to have me back. And I realise that I'm not worthy to be equal uh, to him or uh, as his son. Uh, I'll be happy to just be his servant. I dare say this is what we call repentance. This is somebody who is, I dare say, down on their luck, but they are prepared to humble themselves and admit that they're wrong and that uh, it is only God that can help them. And uh, with that attitude... God can do a lot with us. It could be somebody who's in the Lord and has fallen away. It could be just somebody that's in the world and just realises that they desperately need the Lord. But I tell you right here and now, the attitude that you have when you come to the Lord is going to almost decide what sort of blessing and what sort of benefit you're going to get from the Lord. If you come in, you know, the Bible records the story of John the Baptist baptizing people and uh, how that, um, you know, uh, many of the people came and confessed their sins, it says, and then they were baptized. But the religious leaders of the day, they came, but they didn't have the right attitude. And they came and they said, well, you know, it's right that we should be baptized because we're good and uh, we're the descendants of Abraham and with this and with that, and we don't actually commit sin. I don't know where they ever got that idea from. But there are a lot of people in the world today that don't think that they're sinners. Well, if you come with that attitude, well, you don't get anything from the Lord. Just like John the Baptist said, you're wasting your time. Go away. Don't come here with that attitude. You've got to humble yourself and recognize the fact that you desperately need the Lord. 
So if anybody comes to the Lord with a sort of an attitude of self-righteousness, the point I'm making here today is you'll get nothing from the Lord or you'll only get a limited benefit. If you want to get the full blessing of the Lord, have an attitude like this chap we call the prodigal son. Have an attitude like his, that he humbled himself totally and he was prepared to pretty well do anything and accept anything as long as God would accept him. He said, look, I'll go out and work in the fields as long as I can be part of your, your household, or as we would put it, part of your kingdom. His attitude was great, and God can do a lot with that sort of attitude. It says in verse 20, And he arose, and he came to his father. But when he saw, that's his father, uh, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. He got this unbelievable welcome. But just remember, you only get that sort of a welcome when you have that sort of an attitude. Some people might look at others and think, well, how come the blessing of the Lord is in their life? Maybe it's something to do with their attitude. Maybe it's something to do with their humility. It could be. It most probably is. Maybe we at times are holding out on the things of the Lord a bit. You know, people come to the Lord, but they want to hang on to their old life. We have a great standard in our fellowship, which we get from the Word of God. We encourage people to give up smoking and drinking and drugs and swearing and all the things that go with the world. Some people want to bring a bit of it in. They think, oh, I can just uh, maybe have the occasional drink or have the occasional sort of smoke. You don't realize what you're saying. You're suggesting we break down the whole testimony. You might be able to handle that. But there'll be another brother or sister, maybe particularly somebody coming out of the world that desperately looks for a haven where none of that happens. They might be an alcoholic. Now, most probably, a, if they're a smoker, they're a chronic smoker. I don't know if there's any other sort. It's a very addictive drug. It's very hard to give it up. It takes a miracle often from the Lord for somebody to give it up. But if they find out there's other people in the fellowship that are smoking, and yet they desperately like to give it, it breaks the whole thing down. They find out that you have an occasional social drink. They're an, alcohol they're an alcoholic. They cannot handle that. So over the years, we've made a stand on these things. And by the way, we don't have any intention of changing it. Because we see the results are excellent. We see that it really is a haven for people to come out of the world. You want to come off drugs, you don't want to come into a fellowship where quite a lot of the people are still on drugs. Unless it's somebody that's just recently come to the Lord and they're looking to be set free from it. Sometimes we don't always see this. You wonder why we make a stand on these things. Why do we do it? Because it works. Because it's somewhere where people can come out and they can come down the front here and they can give a testimony. They want to actually be surrounded by people that have had the victory. They don't always see it that way at first. But later on, it is that stand that really helps them. So this uh, young man, he came back and he got an overwhelming reception from the Lord. And that, by the way, is the guarantee that God, he doesn't really hold anything against us. I'm not saying he doesn't care what we do. But he's willing to forgive us what we do or what we've done as long as we have this attitude of where we humble ourselves before the Lord. 
Now and again we have people that maybe have been in the Lord and fallen away and, you know, it sort of niggles away at them and they wonder whether the Lord's forgiven them. Don't have any doubt about that. God is good at forgiving sin. He's far better than what we are. If we've got a good attitude, he doesn't really care what we did in the past. He's interested in what you're thinking today. And if you're repentant of what you did in the past, God has wiped the slate clean. The devil, of course, we don't talk about the devil all that much. He's not worth talking about. But he would like to um, you know, put the thought in our mind that maybe we're not forgiven. Maybe our sin is still there. Well, he is the father of sin and he is the father of condemnation. But you won't get that from the Lord. If you've got the right attitude, he totally forgives you. And he wants you to forget it and he wants you to rejoice. This is the attitude. What does it say here? The son was, he was amazed at the reception. He almost said to his father, do you realize who you're talking to? Do you realize what I've done? Do you realize the situation? It, didn't, it wasn't as though his father didn't know it. His father did know it. But the son wanted to come home. And the son wanted to walk in the ways of the Lord. Then that's the reception. Don't have any doubt about that. But we see here that the son said in verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight. And I'm no, no more worthy to be called thy son. So, again, attitude is really good here. Sometimes, uh, you know, people maybe have been in the Lord and have fallen away and they come back, they don't quite always have this attitude. They're sort of a bit crooked on things, maybe feel the oversight hasn't handled them right and this and that. You're mucking up your chances of coming back into the Lord. Any bitterness really mucks us up. We've said that a thousand times. You've got to put it aside. This guy, he didn't blame anybody else. People tend to do that. I wonder why we do that. When we're in trouble or somebody's having to go, we always sort of try and find fault somewhere else. He didn't do any of that. He just said, look, the ball's in my court. I've gone, I've gone, I've gone astray and I'm not really even worthy to be part of it. But his father would not hear of it. In verse 22, But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat, and be merry. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found, and they began to be merry. So there was tremendous rejoicing here, because there was a way out of it. There was salvation, and it wasn't limited, it wasn't conditional, it was total. The Lord, in this case the Father, had totally forgiven the Son. He welcomed him back in, and there was a great fuss made about this person coming back in. And really, that should be, and hopefully is the way, for anybody that turns to the Lord. We'll only turn to the Lord with all our hearts, well, then uh, this is the welcome that God is prepared to give us. In verse 25, we read the story of the other brother, the one we might have tended to forget about. But it started off by saying in verse 11 that this is the story of two sons, not just one of them. And I always believe it is wrongly called the prodigal son, this story, because it is about two prodigals. 
two different ones that had different problems. And the second one seemed to have, in a, in a sense, a bigger problem than what the first one had. And it says, And now his eldest son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what uh, these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father has killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry, and he would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him or pleaded with him. And he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgress thy at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which has devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. So he's uh, particularly sort of disturbed by this. It's, well, it's such a common thing, isn't it? It's a sort of a, a jealousy. It's um, a sort of, uh, how come that person's got a better deal than me? And particularly if the other person's a bad egg. You know, if the other person's been a rotter, and this person's been, and obviously in his own eyes, a good person, and maybe was a good person in every sense. It's funny, though, that being good sometimes in a natural sense can cause problems in the kingdom of God and can even cause problems after we've come to the Lord. If at any point we start to think that uh, we're in the kingdom of God because we're good, you know, our goodness is totally from the Lord, and all the people said. We are sinners that have been forgiven. We're saved by the grace of God. None of us have any hope whatsoever of being saved if it's dependent upon our righteousness or our goodness. This guy, over the years, had built up in his mind that he was a good son. Maybe while his brother was away, you know, uh, carrying on, he had even more sort of looked at himself as being good. There was the contrast there. He became gooder and gooder as time went on, as his ba brother got badder and badder. There was a, a, a huge gulf had developed, and maybe in his own eyes he kept thinking, well, Dad must be really pleased with me. He's got one son that's good. Even if the other one's a bad egg, I'm a good egg. And he must be very happy. And, and then when this happened, he couldn't handle it. He couldn't handle this incredible reception given to the bad egg, the bad brother. And uh, he just sort of, you know, what's happening here? And the other comment he made was, well, you never ever did anything like that for me. The, the answer was interesting, verse 31, and he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. And that applies to all people on the earth. The Lord is there for us, and whatever he has is ours. But you've got to get it with the right attitude. He says, It was meet or it was right that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is now found. You know, this is, it doesn't really record that the the elder brother got his act together. It doesn't, you sort of think that if he did, it might have said so. It sort of gives the impression 
that he didn't really have the attitude of the younger brother. We're not suggesting that it's a good idea to do what the younger brother did to get the reward. It's a dangerous way to go about it. He just said he didn't actually put the other brother down. He didn't say, look, uh, you've got this problem or that problem. He just said, look, this is the way you look at it. For those of us have had that have natural brothers, maybe you can sort of relate to some of the story. I had an elder brother. I was the next one down. I had a younger brother too, but he was uh, quite a lot younger than us. There was only two years between my elder brother and I. And many of the things that I see in this story, I'm able to relate to them. There's often a time when you feel there's an injustice that's been done. How come he can do this and I can't do that? How come you've given him this and you haven't given it to me? It's a sort of quite a common thing, isn't it? Somehow or other, whatever happens to that person has got to happen to us. In other words, we start living our life in what happens to somebody else or doesn't happen to them. Maybe the message I get out of this story, we shouldn't do it that way. You know, I had lots of uh, fights with my brother. It was a pretty common thing, I suppose. Um, the only time that we were ever really united is when we had a common enemy. Some other person, all of a sudden we were united. But it was just left to the two of us. We invariably fought. When I was a kid, you know, it got quite violent at times. We used to have this game called Touch Last. Ever played Touch Last? It starts off by just touching the other person and running away and then they chase you. It ends up usually fighting and kicking. And I remember one particular one ended up with him with a slug gun and me with a Shanghai <laughs> playing Touch Last. Got quite vicious. So relationship between brothers can be a little bit like you see in this story forms of jealousy and that sort of thing. I remember one occasion when, I, don't, I can't remember what he did, he really upset me about something and I was desperate to somehow or other punish him for what he had done to me. And I don't know why I did this, but I had a big bag of marbles. I was quite good at playing marbles back in the days when kids played marbles. I don't know if they still do these days. But... Uh, you know what it's like at school, all these crazes come through the schools and only last for a few months and then you move on to something else. And he had this big bag of marbles that I'd fought very hard and won at school. And for some crazy reason, to punish him, I grabbed this bag of marbles and took it outside and threw it into the wood heap. And that was going to show him somehow or other. He thought it was a great joke. And he never ever, ever let me forget it how that I threw the bag of marbles into the wood heap. For the next few years, every time you cut the wood, you found a marble. As a constant reminder of how stupid I was. But you do silly things when you're, you're upset about things and you want to punish the other person somehow or other. But, um, yeah, it was sort of, because uh, I was the younger brother, I always used to look forward to growing up. And I used to say to myself, when I grow up, I'll get him. I shall repay him for all the dreadful things he did to me. But the trouble is I came to the Lord and uh, I was never able to repay him. But um, So there you go. Let's have a look in uh, Mark chapter 10. In Mark chapter 10 and verse 17. And it says, And when he, that's the Lord, uh, was gone forth into the way, there came one running, 
And he kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, Do not commit adultery, Do not kill, do not steal, Do not bear false witness, Defraud not, honour thy father and thy mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these things I have observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding, beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, give it to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up thy cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and he went away grieved, for he had great possessions. So another story of life. It's a, it's a story of somebody who really would like to walk with the Lord, but they can't quite get their act together. And I'm sure that the world is full of people, and has been for thousands of years, well, for 2,000 years, anyhow, people who have heard the gospel. And for some, there's, there's been some barrier there that they couldn't give up part of their old way of life or their old way of looking at things is often all that you need. Some preconceived ideas, some education, religious upbringing, whatever it might be, something stands in our way. It could be our fame. We might be somebody that's famous, often feel sad in some ways for people that are famous. It's hard for them to humble themselves and just be just an ordinary person and come to the Lord and to be treated quite ordinary in the things of the Lord. They're used to being famous. It's hard to give up. It's hard to humble yourself in these things. So, first of all, it says there in verse 17 that he came running. This guy was keen. He really wanted to, you know, be involved. There's, there's no doubt about that. There was no reluctance here. And it says he kneeled to him. So he wasn't, in this case, lacking in humility. He wasn't, he wasn't arrogant. He wasn't, um, you know, a big head or anything like that. That wasn't his problem. Guess what? He had another problem. So the point I'm making here, you might not have the problem that the, the elder brother had in the story of the two brothers. This guy had another problem. It doesn't sound like he was particularly self-righteous, although he had every reason to be, and he, he sort of, he headed in that direction, didn't he? When the Lord said, well, you've got to do this, 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 and this, he said, well, I've done all that. He was a good boy too. But it just then the Lord came in on his situation. That's the thing to remember. Your situation might be the same, might be something totally different. He came in on your he will come in on your situation like he did here and he will say, this is what I require of you. One thing that thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, give it to the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come and take up thy cross and follow. First of all, before you can take up your cross and follow the Lord, you've got to do a bit of destroying. I don't know of anybody that can come to the Lord and walk happily with the Lord, unless you're prepared to do a bit of destruction. Something in your life is going to have to go. could be a lot of things. It might be one major thing. 
like it was in the life of this person. If anything stands between us and the Lord, really in a sense it's got to go. But the Jeff gave his testimony today. He said in his case it was music. Music was his God, the band, and that sort of thing. I've often mentioned my testimony. It was sport. It wasn't just playing sport. It was everything to do with sport. I was addicted to it. I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. I could be like this guy. I could say, oh, I didn't do anything really bad. Although there's a few things back there I don't want to really remember. But... Um, you know, about the most evil thing I did at school was going, because I was quite a good runner, it's hard to believe it now, I know, but I was quite a good runner in those days. And my favourite trick was to go and pinch a ball off somebody else that was playing with it and run away with it. And um, I used to stand alongside a basketball court until the ball came near me, grab the ball and then run. Me and another guy, by the way. And we'd, we'd spend about 10 minutes keeping the ball away from them. When they got it back, they half killed us. It was all a lot of fun, though. Remember one day we ended up against this fence, and uh, all my, it was my mate had the ball, and the other kids all piled on top of him. So I came rushing in to rescue him. And as I came in, I rushed up. This kid had cry, climbed up on top of all these pack of kids next to this fence. This wire fence, he climbed up, and as he came in, he kicked. He didn't actually deliberately kick me, he was sort of trying to push one of these other kids away. And uh, I copped it in the face and got a broken nose out of it. So it, it just it served me right, really. So that's some of my sins I've just confessed. But um, really, compared with maybe a lot of the other kids, I was pretty mild, really. But there's something there, there's always something there that you know you've got to give up. Some people, as I said, they come to the Lord and they want life to go on just the same as it was. You know, they're a member of this club, they go here, they do that, they're involved in that sport, and they want to go to church on Sunday, but through the week they really want to just be the same as they were. And we really want to let anybody greatly know, they want to still do the same old things, the old social things. You've got it wrong. The Lord is saying to you here, you need to get rid of it. You need to make a stand for the Lord. He's waiting for you to make a stand for him. He doesn't want you to be ashamed of him anywhere, whether it be at work or at play or recreation, down at the local club. He doesn't want that. He wants you to make a stand for him. He said, I want you to give it up. I want you to destroy it. And the more we do that, you know, the better it is in the Lord. The better testimony we are. Somebody comes up to you and says, what, you're having a lemon squash? What happened? Aren't you drinking anymore? What a great opportunity to be able to spread the word. I notice you don't swear anymore. Well, what's happened? Wow, what a great lead-in. Make a stand for the Lord. Have a testimony. People don't stop and think about that. When they don't want to give up their old life, they're destroying part of their testimony. They can't come out the front and say, hey, the Lord's blessed me, the Lord has set me free from this and that. Their testimony is, well, I'm still a cupboard smoker. I still have the occasional drink. That's their testimony. That's not a testimony. Well, it is, but it's not the one the Lord wants us to have. So he just said to this young guy, your wealth in your particular case is going to stand in your way. Give it up. 
come and follow me, take up the cross, which means the burden of the gospel. You're going to come under persecution. Your friends are not going to, you know, quite be so happy with you. You know, it's, uh, there's different ways you can look at that. When I came to the Lord, as I've often mentioned, three, I was only at school, but I had three friends that I was really cl- close to. You know, you're like that, you're thinking, what are they going to think? And in the end, I was so excited about coming to the Lord, I witnessed to them. And they hated it. And unfortunately, to this day, as far as I know, they hated it. I've lost contact with them many years ago. And they, one by one, said in their own way, we want you like you were before. You've got to stop talking about this God. And then you say, well, I can't. But that's your testimony. I lost three friends and gained thousands of others. You don't see it that way at the time. You're worried about what you're going to lose. You're not going to lose anything. Let's have a look in uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 9. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were uh, righteous, and they despised others. Two men went up uh, into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican, or we would say a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself should be abased, but he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Why does God put these stories in the Bible? Story after story are all quite similar. He's trying to drum it into our thick skull that this is the right sort of attitude. Don't ever come to God in in how good you are. He's not interested in that. In actual fact, it stands as a barrier between you and the Lord. He wants you to humble yourself. The Pharisee, you know, it's, it says in verse 9, those that trust in themselves is one problem, and the second problem was that they despised others. Well, that's a pretty common sort of thing. I mean, the, the, uh, the brother, the elder brother, he had that problem. He trusted in himself. He went through and said how good he was, and then he despised his brother and ran through the list of his brother's sins. How could you possibly accept this guy? He's done this. He's wasted your money. He makes you thought that was some sort of argument with his uh, father. It's your money that he's wasted. You know, you should be upset about that. But in the end, there was nothing to be upset about. Why? Because he had a great attitude. So the publican uh, ended up with a better attitude than the Pharisee. The Pharisee said, I haven't done this and I haven't done that and I've done this and I've done that. Well, God's not interested in, in those sort of things. He didn't have to convince the publican he was, that he was a sinner. He knew he was. He, didn't, he wasn't even a bit like the, the, uh, the, the, the younger son. He said, you know, I'm, I'm not really worthy of this. But God, if you can possibly forgive me, forgive me. It says that he was justified. God loved that. Didn't love his sin, but he loved saving the sinner 
We can't do anything about the past in our life, but we can wreck the future if we don't see it as God sees us. The Bible says if our heart condemns us, you know, uh, we, don't, uh, we don't have our confidence, we don't have our faith in God, but it says if our heart condemns us not, then have we confidence towards the Lord. Somehow or other we've got to get rid of the condemnation. We've got to realise that God's forgiven us and uh, he's given us a new start. And the past is gone. Let's have a look in um, Luke chapter 17, back a page, just verse 7. Luke 17, verse 7. And which of you, having a servant, ploughing or feeding cattle, will say unto him, By and by, when he come from the field, go and sit down to meet? And will not rather say unto him, Make ready wherewith I shall sup, or have tea, and gird thyself and serve me, till I have eaten and drunken, and afterwards thou shalt eat and drink. Doth he thank the servant, because he did the things which uh, that were commanded of him? I trow not, or I, I don't think he did. So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things, which are commanded of you, say we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. It's talking about attitude. You know um, the story of the of the uh, guys who had been sent into the vineyard to work. The guys early in the morning they agreed to a penny a day. Doesn't sound a lot, does it? But it doesn't matter what the amount of currency was. And then some people came in just before knockoff time. They also got a penny. The first one said, hey, this is not right. You know, it's sort of a union thing, isn't it? We, we've got a problem here. And yet, as the, as the master said, well, didn't you agree to that? Didn't you agree to just a penny? And they said, but these guys have only worked for an hour. And we've worked all day in the heat of the day. And you're going to give them the same reward. It's an attitude thing. You can look at life like that. You can f forever be gauging yourself by somebody else whether they're getting this or getting that. The, the message I get out of this, you don't do that. It's between you and the Lord. It doesn't matter what anybody else is doing in a, certain, in a, in a sense. I mean, we are responsible for our brother and sister to try and help them in their walk in the Lord. But as far as their own walk in the Lord is concerned, it's between us and the Lord. If somebody else gets a better deal, well, all we should be doing is saying, praise the Lord. What we've got to do is do the right thing before the Lord. He's saying here, you know, in the case of an employee as we would have it today, if they do what they're paid to do, you don't go up to them afterwards and say, thank you for doing that. They were paid to do it. That was their job. And he's, he's really saying to us, if we are saved, if we came to the Lord at the age of 17 like I did, and you're being around maybe all your life, and you go through lots of trials and tribulations, and the end result is you're saved. Another person gets saved a week before the Lord comes back. Well, we're not going to be upset, are we? We really are not. We're happy. We could think, wow, we went through all that, and this trouble and that trouble, and, you know, we ought to get a better reward. You know, we ought to get some position. I think most of us would look at the attitude, Lord, as long as I get in there, that's all that matters. Bit like the, the, the younger son, Lord, I'll do the most menial task. 
You know, I don't want any particular reward. I just want to get in there. That's all that matters. Let's have a look in... Um, running out of time here. John uh, 21. Story of where the Apostle Peter, when he had denied the Lord three times and then the Lord appeared and on the, when they were fishing, same old story and, you know, they had caught all this fish. And the Lord was sort of putting the hard word on Peter and asking whether he loved him. He said, Peter, do you love me? But he said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said, well, I've got a job for you to do. I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to feed my lambs. And he kept asking him. And the third time, Peter got angry with the Lord. And just read that in verse chapter 21, verse 17. And he said unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, lovest thou me? And Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, lovest thou me? You know, he reminded Simon that he was the son of Jonah. What he was maybe saying is where does your allegiance lie? Is it with your natural father or is it with your heavenly father? Do you feel bound to this earth? Are you going to go on and be controlled by the things of this world or are you going to be subject to my kingdom? Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than fishing? In your case, if you're having a bit of a problem on giving up something that belongs to this world and you're trying to convince yourself you can still do it in the Lord. The Lord is actually saying to you, do you love me more than that? Are you prepared to give that up for me? You might not have to give it up, by the way. He's just saying to you, though, are you prepared to give it up? Maybe the young man, if he'd actually said, yeah, sure, I'll go and sell everything that I've got, the rich young man, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'm, I'll be right with you. Maybe the Lord would have said, okay, you don't really need to do it. I don't know. He didn't say that to every rich person in the Bible. He maybe just knew that this young guy, that it was a problem with him. So the Lord comes to us and he really says to every one of us, the same as what he said to Peter, do you love me more than the things that are important in your life? Do you love me more than this person? Your parents? Your husband? Your wife? Your children? Your best friend? Your workmates? Your, your social mates? Your social activities? Do you love me more than them? Or is there going to come some time when that means more to you? Really, if our answer is at any time, no, Lord, I'm sorry, on this particular thing, you'll have to take second place. He says, ta-da, this is not going to work. He demands to be number one. And really, it's the only way to work in, in your walk in the Lord. So we've got to examine ourselves. I'm not saying this to condemn anybody. We all go through this. We've got to look at our life and get our priorities right. We haven't really valued what it means to be in the Lord. We maybe haven't valued our testimony. We haven't valued our fellowship. We haven't put enough value upon God's word. And what a precious thing it is that we actually heard the gospel and we had the opportunity to be saved. So he's putting the hard word on Peter. Peter, do you really love me more than all of this? And it goes on to say, and he said unto him the third time, lovest thou me? And he said, Lord, thou knowest all things, thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus said unto him, feed my sheep. He didn't say, okay, Peter, yeah, 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 you've convinced me. He just came back at him every time and said, well, you've got a job to do. Don't just tell me in word, 
you do it. You prove that you that uh, I mean more to you than anybody else. And then he goes on to say, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. And this spake he signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had uh, spoken this, he said unto him, Follow me. So yet again, he'd heard that actually three and a half years before. Follow me. Nothing's changed, Peter. You're here to follow me. And he also indicated in verse 18, when you were younger, you were in control of your life. I now say, you're no longer in control of your life. You've committed yourself to me. I'm in control of your life. And even to such a degree, I'll prophesy the way that you're going to die. We don't know exactly how Peter died, but sort of um, a little bit of, uh, whatever you call it, um, tradition or something indicates that maybe Peter died crucified upside down. We don't know whether that's true or not. Some people say it is. We don't really know. It does interesting. It says stretching forth your hands, which is an indication of crucifixion. The thought being that he got crucified upside down is that he said, so the story goes, that he would not be crucified the way the Lord was. If he's going to be crucified, I'll get crucified upside down. Either way, you're going to die. But uh, here's an indication that, um, you know, hey, you know, you're going to commit yourself to me. I'm in control of your life. And then it says in verse 20, Then Peter turning about... Seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved, that of course is the author of this book, or this particular part of the book, the, the Gospel of John. This is talking about John, Jesus' love following, which also leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, which is he that betrayed thee? So it's identifying the person. Who was the person who leaned on the Lord's breast at the night of the Last Supper? Who was the one who then said, which one of us is betraying you? And of course, it was Judas Iscariot. So it's identifying the person here. So he said, uh, this is who Peter's talking about. And he turned to this person. In verse 21, And Peter, seeing John, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Hey, we've got a problem here. All of a sudden, Peter's sort of gauging his life by what happens to John. He's sort of saying, well, you know, you're putting the hard word on me. Why don't you put the hard word on him? Why are you picking on me sort of thing? The Lord came back at him. And Jesus said unto him, if I will that he tarry or he remains alive till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Do you know what? This is one of the best little bits of instruction in the Word of God for every one of us. We, Our life is not in any way geared to what somebody else does or doesn't do or what blessing they get or they don't get. He said to Peter, I'm not going to even talk to you about what's happening with John. That's between me and John. If I decide, by the way, that I reckon he can live for the next 2,000 years, which is, as we know, would possibly what he was saying, because he hasn't come back for 2,000 years. He said, what is it to you? It's irrelevant 
what happens with John? They got the whole story wrong. They started saying, John's going to live forever. He did, by the way, outlive the whole lot of them. Uh, he was uh, maybe outlived them by 20 or 30 years. He was the youngest of the 12 apostles, and uh, a lot of them died uh, as martyrs, but he actually ended up at the, around AD 95, wrote the book of Revelation when he was a very old man on the island of Patmos where he had been stranded or abandoned or whatever they do with people. But um, the point, the big point in this is it's between us and the Lord. It doesn't matter what anybody else does or doesn't do. People often have their own walk in the Lord mucked up by the fact of looking at somebody else. How come they can do this or how come they can't do that or how come you'll let them do that? They're, they're gauging their life. You just don't do that. It's between you and the Lord. And that's what he said to Peter. Forget John. You get on. You just follow me. That's the thing that matters. We'll finish off in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Oh, we might have a little look at chapter 4 also. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Just talking about some problems in the early church. People being not wanting to work and a bit of idleness and the problems that come from it. And just a couple of verses. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 12. It says, Having damnation because they have cast off their first faith. We know in Revelation chapter 2, it talks about people leaving their first love. Here it talks about people losing their first faith. There's most probably not much difference. They're mostly hand in glove, same sort of thing. In verse 13 it says, And with all, or besides this, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but tattlers also, and busybodies, speaking things which they ought not. Now this is a description of somebody in the Lord. Somebody who's got it wrong, and again, maybe in a different way than what Peter was doing, looking at others, talking about others, condemning others, comparing with others. It says in other scriptures we know, they that compare themselves with themselves, blah, 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 I can't remember it all, um, are not wise. If, if the gauge in your walk in the Lord is what others are doing, it's not a good way to live. Here it's people just getting involved in that sort of life. It's not a good way to live in the Lord. The final and the best advice is what he said to Timothy in the, in the previous, previous chapter. Verse 12 it says, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers, in word, in conversation, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity, till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, the laying on of the hands of the presbytery, or the oversight, as we would say. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. In other words, be a good testimony. Take heed unto thyself. There's the advice. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. You want to influence somebody else in the Lord? Be a good example. Be a good testimony. Be on fire for the Lord. Don't lose your first faith. Don't lose your first love. Be involved in the things of the Lord. And all the people said, Amen.